Jesus is victory over that was the title that we had last week, and that was part one. <clears throat> and now we're doing Jesus' victory over that part two, okay? And the audio recording is on on this so that you can read, hear the other, and that's, I'm very excited that we're getting those out in good pace. But we talked about that victory is in Jesus, not dispensed by Jesus. Victory is in Jesus, not dispensed by Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians 2.14, it says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. So the Scripture says that Jesus is always leading us in triumph in Him. Always. Now, I know many of you, and certainly in the world this is true, <clears throat> people do not walk in triumph but they hear anything but triumph. One of the things we're going to talk about today is really how many people in the world are depressed and anxious and how sad it is how much that is in this world. It's rampant in this world. I dare say every one of you could name 10 people that you know who have problems with depression and or anxiety. It's just a very tough thing that the enemy puts on top of us. But the scripture says, in Jesus, there is always triumph. And when I'm sitting here not in triumph, the Lord always reminds me, where are you? Because you're not in me, because in me there's triumph. And for some reason I'm not in him, and he helps me get in him. But he always leads us in triumph. <clears throat> in Ephesians 1.3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ. So the blessing of triumph is not unusual. That's one of many, many blessings that are hidden in Christ and for us to be there. And so last week we talked a lot about Isaiah 61. We're not going to repeat that again, but we just want to make sure that, we, that we're well up, that Jesus is the healer of the brokenhearted. Those who are captive or in prison, he sets free. Those who are mourning, not only does he comfort, but he gives an oil of gladness. Those who are in ashes, whose lives have fallen apart, he exchanges ashes for an ornament of beauty. He exchanges a fainting spirit or a spirit of heaviness for a garment of praise. Jesus does that. That's the first things he read in the scripture about what he would do when he stood up in the temple. And he'll strengthen us and he provides strength to go through difficult times that aren't victorious. But today I want to start off and really deal with the battle against victory in our life. The battle against finding victory in Jesus is very heavily fought by the enemy. When I was a young Christian, I just didn't want to think about Satan. I didn't like people talking about Satan. If you got up and said, well, we're going to have a lesson today on Satan, I go, well, I think I'll skip that one. That's not so much fun. I like to talk about love and peace and joy and blessing from God. That's what I like to hear about. And that is fine to hear about those things. But it's very important to recognize that we have an adversary. And this adversary is active. He doesn't just go, well, it's Columbus Day. I'm taking a day off. He doesn't do that, and he's active. In the scripture, Jesus said in the scripture that he's giving us knowledge so that we're very able to know the ways of the enemy so that we will know his tactics. And so we're going to talk about a couple of things because when the we're, when enemy is trying to come in and take triumph out of us, he's trying to move us out of the living Christ, the scripture says he, he does several things that are characteristic, and we need to know about them. And the first thing that I want to mention is the Bible says that Satan 
is the accuser of the brethren. The accuser of the brethren. And that means um, that he is the expert and always involved in accusing. And this verse is very important, and it's not commonly read, but Revelations 12, 9 and 10 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. It is so amazing to think Satan is accusing us before God day and night. Does that bother you? That bothers me. And he is the accuser of the brethren. He picks things out. You know, we don't like being with people who find fault one with another. Do you know anybody who finds fault with other people? Yes, if you know people, you know people who find fault with other people. They do that. I mean, how would it be if somebody came up to me and I was wearing a tie and Jan, they said, oh, what a nice tie. Wasn't that popular in the early 60s? (laughs) Is that the kind of person you want to hang around with? You're finding fault with the style of my tie? Helen periodically goes through my closet and throws ties out because I don't throw ties out. Looks like a good tie to me. You know, but there are some trends in ties. And I could easily be wearing a 60s tie the next time you see me, so don't worry about that. But we don't like people that find fault. It's something that we don't like. The enemy is a constant fault finder of every Christian, and he is the accuser. And also this verse says he is the deceiver. He is the deceiver of the whole world. So his tactic is both to accuse and to deceive. And we'll talk later about more things of Satan, but those are two big ones. And there's a third one that I want to get, and that's Satan, the oppressor. And in Acts 10, 38, it says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Satan accuses. He's the accuser of the brethren. He deceives. He oppresses. Now, in our lives, we're going to hear those things. We're going to hear accusations. We're going to hear deceptions. Hopefully, we won't fall for them. And we're most definitely going to feel oppression. We're going to experience those things. The Bible says those things come from Satan. They come from Satan. And what did it say about what Jesus was going to do when he was on earth? In 1 John 3, 8, it says, For the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Well, if Satan is accusing and deceiving and oppressing, Jesus is breaking accusations, revealing truth rather than deception, and lifting the oppressed, and lifting the oppressed. Well, you might go, well, my goodness, how is it then that we get caught in this so often? Because people get caught in this many, many times in their life. If you just think through your last week, 
you will find times that there's just been stuff that came on you. Shirley was sharing with me before this thing started that um, we had a, a meeting out in Johns Creek, and when she was coming to the meeting last week, she just had all sorts of difficulty coming her path getting there. And then she was traveling in today, and her GPS broke. Well, how often does your GPS break? But somehow she called out and got here. She got here very much on time. But the, it's not at all odd that the enemy would come in and try to put things in your way. And it, it bothers me a little bit in my life that I keep getting surprised that there's resistance. There's going to be resistance. There's going to be an enemy who comes in and tries to oppress, and he tries to accuse you, and he's going to try to deceive you. Now, when you hear that voice, don't go, oh my gosh, what in the world's going on? This is the enemy. He comes in and tries to do that. He goes, well, there's a sin I can usually get Sasha on. If I can't get her on this deception, I'm going to try to get her on this deception, but I'm going after Sasha this morning. He does that. He does it when you're about to minister. He does it when you're about to share with the Lord. He'll come to you and say, uh, Hope, how can you share with that person? You're not a teacher. How can you go up to them and share these things? What's in you that's so special? Do you think you are the instructor of the world? Satan, Satan, Satan. Do you hear that? Every person that knows Jesus can go up to someone and say, I met Jesus. He changed my life. I want to introduce you to Jesus. He can change your life. 12 seconds. You got it? If you know Jesus, you can introduce them to Jesus. That is the gospel. I would like for you to meet the King of Kings who can take death, destruction in your life and transform it to life everlasting. Here he is. He's Jesus. He changed me. You don't have to know everything. The Holy Spirit will come and do that. You know, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. It will not be the cleverness of your speech, nor that you've got your scriptures ordered in the right direction, nor that you watched John Ware do it this way last time, and I'm going to do just what John did, and it worked for John, so it'll work for me. That's not it. That's not it. It's Jesus who draws, and he was lifted up, and he does draw all people unto him. And he'll take the voice that we'll put out there, and he'll bless it. And he'll make his spirit and his word come across. So when we have then, when we're dealing with thoughts of defeat and oppression, that's the first thing I want to say. What happens when defeat and oppression look like they come to your doorstep and pitch a tent and won't leave? They enter your bedroom and get into bed with you. Defeat and oppression, just walk right in. Uninvited, but they're just there. Often they're in your feelings, often they're in your mind. You can't say exactly where they are, but they just somehow entered your life, defeat and oppression. Well, there are a couple of things to do. We're going to talk about really important things to do, but we're going to talk about some of the scriptures on it because the scriptures on it are very important because when we're working with the enemy, the Bible says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is an offensive weapon, and the enemy hates it. And when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, every word that Jesus spoke was the word of God. But he chose to quote scripture every single time the enemy came. But everything he said was scripture, but he chose to quote scripture. And when the enemy comes, he will try to deceive us. The best battle against deception is to be able to speak the word of God. And when he says, this temptation is too great for you, and you, Gary, you can't handle it. You can handle a number of things, but this is too much for you, Gary. 
And furthermore, Gary, you know it's too much for you. So instead of fighting and fighting and fighting, just be efficient, Gary, and go ahead and give in. Just yell at them. That's the enemy. But if you know a verse, if you can come back and say in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation shall overtake you that's not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your strength. But with the temptation, he will provide a means of escape that you may be able to endure it. Then any temptation that comes to you in life, any time you're sitting there and you go, I think I'm sliding, sliding, sliding into this, I can't stop it. And the enemy goes, no, you can't stop it, just let go. Then you know there is no temptation that God lets you slide into that he can't pull you out of. No temptation. And that what you're hearing is a lie. Now this is complicated because we hear things we like to believe in people. You know, you, you meet somebody new, they tell you something, and you, you like to believe them, you give them the benefit of the doubts first off. And it's a little bit difficult for our minds to catch the fact that we get lies pouring into our ears. There are lies pouring into our ears. There is deception pouring into our ears. And when someone says to us something, they're going to make it sound like it's a good thing. They're going to paint evil as good. Remember what Jesus said of the scribes and the Pharisees? You are whitewashed tombs. You are death painted over. Satan himself appeared as an angel of light. No one in this room has had Satan walk into their room looking horribly ugly, saying, my name is Satan, I want to take you to hell and make sure you're punished eternally. He never shows up that way. He shows up deceiving. And we need to know Jesus so that we can hear that. And I'm going to talk about some things on discernment, to me, that are very important. So that when the enemy comes in and says those things and tries to bring defeat and tries to bring oppression into our life, we can speak back against it and not receive it. Not receive it. But the first thing I want to encourage you to do is that if you're in a place like that, make sure you get your relationship right with God. Then let me tell you why that's so important. In Isaiah 59, 1, it says, The arm of the Lord is not shortened. And I'm telling you today, the arm of the Lord is not shortened. You hear people pray and say, God, I would like for you to move the way you moved back then. I would like to you to move, Don, like you moved in the Azusa Street Revival. That's what I want you to do, God. Why, God, do you shorten your arm? Why don't you do now like you did then? But the scripture says, the arm of the Lord is not shortened. The arm of the Lord is not shortened. And the next verse says, but your sins have made a separation between you and God. And if we're sitting here in life, and the Lord, the Holy Spirit, has worked in us and prompted us and said, look, this is something that's got to change, and we have put it on the back burner, you cannot be in close fellowship with the Lord. You can't be in close fellowship with the Lord. I was talking with John right before the thing began, and I'd shared this, and when I was um, praying about this some last night, the Lord gave me a second example. But the first example that I share, and I've shared this multiple times, is we don't regard a small sin in our life as a big deal. As a matter of fact, we call it a small sin. Did you hear my words? We call it a small sin. We, we rank sins. We say, murder, that's a really bad one. Uh, gossip, that's not so bad. That's a small sin. 
There's not such, in God's eyes, when you let sin abide, it is a horrible thing. And the example that I'd used was that if my wife came up to me and said, I love you, and I love you more than any man on earth, and so I want to spend more time with you than anybody else, but one Friday night a month, I want to go out with another man. Well, we would all go, that is absolutely horrible. That's terrible. But what if Helen was to say to me, why are you so picky? You're getting 97% of my time. Why are you so picky? I'm just going out one Friday night. Do you see how horrible that is? That is the way sin that we leave abiding in our life is to God. It is that horrible. It is a horrible, horrible thing. And I've shared before things that are disgusting. I think I was sharing the other week about if someone gave you a nice box from Neiman Marcus that looked like a beautiful present, and Christian, you went to open it and said, boy, they got me a great present because it's in a Neiman Marcus box. Now, I've never been in Neiman Marcus, but it's expensive, I know. And they have boxes. And then you open it up and you look at it, and there's a dead rat with maggots eating it. That's what I want it to do to you. I want that repulsion in you. I want the repulsion because the enemy paints sin like a Neiman Marcus box. And when you open up, it is death. The wages of sin is death, and we don't believe that. So when the Lord works in us and says, uh, you know, when I talk to you about not gossiping, it seems to go in one ear and out the other, because as soon as you get out there, you start talking about, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? And da-da-da-da-da. The Lord jumped on me a long time ago and said, anytime you talk about another person, you are saying, I am better than they are. You are saying, I am better than they are. What you're saying, Karen, is, did you hear about so-and-so? And right behind that, you're saying, I wouldn't do that, but they did that. That's what you're saying. You're saying, I am better than they are. Gossiping is a veiled form of the pride of life. It is a horrible thing, and it is something in this country we have horrific problems with because we want to exalt ourselves higher than God. We want our understanding to be something that God comes underneath and that God will never have that. He will never have that. Our understanding is foolishness with him, but we don't believe that. We read that in the scripture. We read where it says this world's wisdom is foolishness with God, and we say, well, maybe in the 1700s, but you see, I've got a BMW, and I drive all these neat things, and we fly around in planes. God's got to be impressed. God is not impressed. He is not impressed. You know, in Daniel 12, 4, it says in the last days, there will be two distinguishing things in the last days, according to Daniel 12, 4. It says that people will be running to and fro on the face of the earth and that knowledge will increase greatly. And boy, that doesn't make you think we're in the day. I don't know how long we've got. We may have 100 years. But people are running to and fro on the face of the earth. 6,000 years we had horses. That was it. We started running to and fro. I'd say with trains, but cars definitely did it. We are running to and fro. And think about how much man's knowledge has gone up. We can do things, but the Bible says when you see that increase in knowledge, that will be the last day. Daniel 12, 4. It's sitting in Daniel 12, 4. But God's done other, God does amazing things just to show us that we're not so smart. Uh, again, I, I don't want to get too far off the tack, but 
I'm, I'm with a bunch of scientists all the time, Christian, and scientists really like discovering new things and finding out new stuff. Well, up until about 2004, 2005, the great theory of the universe was there was a big bang that started off everything and went kabam, and then things just kind of started slowing down, and in some billions of years, it'll all stop expanding. And some people made some measurements fully expecting to document that, and they went up and made all these measurements and did all these things they do with stars and tracking light. And they came back and said, uh-oh, we've got a big problem. Instead of the universe expanding and slowing down, it turns out that the universe is expanding faster and faster. Well, how can you have that? You've just messed everything up. And all of our knowledge before 2005 was wrong. Well, were we smart in 2004? Sure, we were smart. We were really smart. I'm telling you, we were smart. No, we weren't smart. We had the whole thing backwards. We were slowing everything down. God's speeding everything up. And then they got together, and I'm telling you, this frustrated scientist to no end, and they go, how can we be doing that? And so they tried to figure out all this stuff out, and then they figured out, oh my gosh, and at the end of all their figurings, they came to the place and said, this is going to be a shock. But it turns out, that we've messed up on darkness now how can you botch darkness okay but we had botched darkness so we'd said in the universe there's light and the absence of light is darkness and that's darkness seems simple enough right but they said it turns out that darkness really isn't just nothing not just the absence of light but darkness is actually something called dark matter and oh, by the way, dark matter makes up two-thirds of the universe, which means we have no idea what's going on in two-thirds of the universe. And we have no idea. We've just named it. We don't know what it is. We've just named it. We don't know what's going on. But do you know, um, I think it's Isaiah 45.7, but would have to, I'd have to double-check. It's either 45.7, it might be 47.5, but it's one of those. It says, for the Lord created darkness the lord created darkness sitting back in isaiah all these years there was no darkness to created to be created and everybody would look in there and say well see that scripture doesn't know what it's talking about darkness just the absence of light don't you ever tell god he doesn't know what he's talking about i can tell you you're headed down the wrong road Bible says the Lord created darkness, and he created darkness. We have just figured out that darkness needs to be created. The God we serve has a knowledge greater than all of our knowledge. We're not even close to it. That's why the Bible says that it's foolishness with God. And in Isaiah 55, it says, For his ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And if you disagree and you say, Well, I don't think that's true, it has nothing to do with it. It's still true. His ways and thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts. So with God, it's very important that we get our relationship right with him, that we don't let sin abide. And I mean a little sin. And I mean when I say a little sin, you're thinking, I'm thinking, this is a little sin. I'm praying about a big thing. I feel oppressed. That's big. This little sin over here doesn't relate. It does relate because God said it was important. And so make sure you deal with the thing in your life, that we deal with the thing in our lives, that God has pointed out, this is bad. Deal with it. Do not let it sit around. Jesus talked about a little leaven messing up the whole loaf. This is the same thing. A little thing messes up a lot. 
Helen going out with one man one Friday night messes up a lot. Do you see that? I'm going to give you one more example because when I was praying about it last night, so the Lord showed me a shower head, and it was one of those nice shower heads. We don't own it, but it's a nice shower head, one of those big ones, got all these nozzles coming out and everything. And a guy was installing it, and he installed the shower head and said, Dr. Perkle, this is all done. You're all set up, and really clean, wonderful flowing water will come out of each one of these jets, and you'll have a great shower. Just one thing. One of the jets is spewing concentrated hydrochloric acid. It shouldn't be a problem. You have plenty of water, just a little bit of concentrated hydrochloric acid spraying on you. Do you see how you could not take a shower and have concentrated hydrochloric acid spraying on you? It just caused a little streak down here, take out your eye, take out all your tissue. You got this hope if you're going to, you know, it's, there's a little bit of anatomy there. But that would be absolutely unacceptable. That's how God sees sin that resides. Now, I'm not saying do a hunt in your life and go, oh my gosh, there's sin, I don't know where it was, if that's got to be it. No, the Holy Spirit will show you. The Holy Spirit will show you. You're not to panic, you're not to self-criticize. Just open yourself up and say, Holy Spirit, show me where there's a problem. He'll show you. He will show you. He'll say, you're still upset with your sister-in-law because she scheduled her wedding one week before yours. And you scheduled yours way in advance. And all the relatives could come to that one and couldn't come to yours. And you're still upset with her and it's been 25 years. I want you to forgive her. That's what I mean. Holding unforgiveness in our hearts is sin. And the Lord will touch us and say, I want you to forgive that sister-in-law. Your mother always treated your brother preferentially. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, just, there's so many things in when we're brought up and what happened to us as friends. You are bitter at God because you were born into a poor family and your friends had money and all your life you were trying to make up for the fact you didn't have money like they did. And you're bitter at God. Give that bitterness up. These are the kinds of things that are inside of us that God touches. Very important that we get those footholds and get them done. And the reason for that is we want God fully on our side and you cannot be pushing God away with sin and pulling him towards you saying, I love you. You can't do that. And so he will work with sin. And uh, we've talked about this before, that it says of Jesus he was given the oil of gladness above his brethren because he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. So to it's loving righteousness, we're pretty, a lot of us like that part. Hating iniquity is what's been left out a lot. We have to hate iniquity, not play with iniquity. Remember, the world dives into sin. Many Christians play with sin. Jesus hated sin and loved sinners. I'm going to say that again. The world dives into sin, in deception, believing it'll satisfy. Many Christians play with sin. Jesus hated sin and loved sinners at the same time. So this hatred of sin is a big deal. Now, that's the first step. You always have to get that straightened out. Every day in life, if there's something messed up, that's the first thing you need to do. But the second thing is to recognize the voice of Satan that's talking to you. How do we discern that the voice of Satan is talking to us and this isn't something that Jesus is doing or something else? So if you're hearing ideas or thoughts are just kind of coming into your mind, 
you know, if you're hearing these things, people are always say to me, well, I don't know really how to discern what's of the enemy and what's of God. So I want to put over to the side for a second questions about future direction. So if you were sitting here and, and John, you were saying, well, I want to see if I'm going to expand my school. I'm not really sure if the Lord is asking me to take out a loan to expand my school, and I'm praying about that. I'm putting that over to the side. I'm not talking about that right now. But what I'm talking about is when you hear voices and things that come in that oppress and discourage you. Okay, so the first thing that I want to mention is that the Bible says that Jesus loves and builds and comes as a rescuer. He comes as a rescuer. He will point out a fault, but will always present himself as the rescue for that sin. So if Jesus is showing us something... He doesn't show us something and leave us in hopelessness. He shows us something and says, I can rescue you from that bitterness. I can rescue you from that unforgiveness. Give it to me and I will take it away. And that's why he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It wasn't, repent, you bad, bad people, you're bad, bad, bad. No, it was repent because your rescue is right in front of you right now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the time for you to be rescued. It says of Jesus in Matthew 1.21 that he will save his people from their sins. He will rescue his people from their sins. And when Jesus is talking to you, when the Holy Spirit is talking to you, it will be a rescue. It will be, this is not right, but this is how I can rescue you. So Jesus never leaves you defeated or oppressed. He always leaves you, this is the door to victory in me. He always leaves you that way. And if you have a voice that comes on you and doesn't sound like that, it's not Jesus. It's not the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That is not what's going on because the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world of sin that they would repent and be rescued from sin. Remember, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will take from me and give to you. And that's what he does. Another verse about Jesus that is so important is about setting free from the bondage of sin. When he said he rescues you from sin, I used to read that when I was a young Christian and go, oh, yeah, 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 this is you get forgiveness of sin and you get into heaven. Well, yes, that's part of it. But he rescues you from sin Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. He is an active rescuer, and he interacts with us all the time. And sin is knocking on the door saying, Whoa, if you'll just come dance with me, I'll give you a great time. And we haven't danced in a while. And let me show you the beautiful things and wonderful ways I can help you out with. And you can do it at the expense of other people. They've been living at your expense for a long time. Turnabout is fair play. Time to get some of the juicy stuff. Every day. He's going to do that every day. I had trouble in my life because I had this sense of justice. I told this story to Helen before, but I don't th see a Mary in here, but I used to love the name Mary. It was a very pretty name. I just loved it. And I went to the second grade and ran into a girl who was kind of bigger than everybody else, and she would go out on the playground and take the first graders and throw them on the ground. I, we would call her a bully. She would just go up to people and just throw them on the ground. And they would cry. First graders just cry. And I was in the second grade, and that was not fair. So I went up to that Mary and looked at her and said, you should not do that. And I threw her on the ground. Do you see? I was in the second grade, but she had violated my sense of justice. Have you got that? 
You got that? And so, now, I never liked the name Mary after that because I could still see that girl. You know, had Helen been a Mary, it could have been a problem. But I just didn't have a, I didn't have a good thing about a Mary after that. But I had that sense of justice. Now, the Lord is beyond justice. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is merciful. And we have to be careful because one of the tricks that the enemy will come in with, Jane, is he'll say, you are God's righteous instrument to put justice on the earth. Boy, you don't think that sounds tricky. I'm telling you, he's the deceiver. Well, that sounds good. First of all, I like the fact that I'm the instrument. That's good. I like to be the instrument. And certainly, we don't want injustice. So it's good to put justice there. So this all sounds very godly. Do you see how tricky that is? But you see, if Jesus gave us justice, we would all perish. He goes beyond justice to mercy and love. And he calls us to go beyond justice to mercy and love. See, Jesus said to pray for your enemies, not to point your enemies out and say how bad they are. Do you do that? I do that. It's a bad thing. Don't pick out your enemies and say, look at these people. Let me tell you 10 things that are wrong with them. And I'm just going to tell you, and this is flat wrong. Not only is it flat wrong, but they keep doing it. They didn't make one mistake and fix it. They keep doing it. They are bad people. We're not going to follow them. Jesus never did that. He just said, pray for your enemies. Don't cast them down. Don't say how much better I am than they are. Just pray for your enemies. Jesus goes beyond justice to mercy and love. And he calls us to go beyond justice to mercy and love. And where is love? In Romans 8, it says, the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. The love of God is in Christ. And when we're abiding in him, we abide in that love. But the enemy comes in to deceive. And he'll come in to oppress. And he'll make you sense your justice. And so you've got to go straighten all this out. But God is always able to overcome the tricks of the enemy. But the tricks of the enemy are tricky. This is what we fall for too many things. Uh, uh, again, sometimes I say things over and over. And I don't apologize for that because there's some things that need to be laid in our hearts really thick. And one of the big things is, if you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. Because if you knew you were deceived, you wouldn't be deceived. Have you got me? So it's very important that we just don't go, oh, I'm not deceived. You need to call out to the Lord. And you need to the Lord, search me and know me and see if there be a wicked way in me. And call out to the Lord and say, is this thing right? And we're going to talk about, again, some scriptures that help. But you don't just go around saying, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a 25-year Christian. I don't get deceived. He just jacks up the deception. You cannot take Satan on one-on-one without the Lord. You will lose. If you think, oh, I'm, listen, I'm a really good Christian. I've done this for a long time. You know, John holds back there. He's led numbers of people to the Lord. I, I can take on Satan. You should not walk near Satan without the Lord. You shouldn't walk out on the street without the Lord. The stupidest thing we can do in life is to walk without the Lord. That's the stupidest thing we can do. If I didn't have the Lord, I would be depressed. There's nothing in this world to encourage you. You would, I, I understand people are depressed. They should be depressed. Without the Lord, there's no encouragement. There's no hope. 
no real hope. And what happens is people go after false hopes and they go, this wasn't any good. Yes, it isn't any good. Jesus is the singular hope of the world. Religion is not the hope of the world. Enlightenment is not the hope of the world. Any sort of spirituality is not the hope of the world. Jesus alone is the hope of the world. You mess around in these other things, it's only how fast you're going to be frustrated and wander into death. But you will be frustrated and wander into death. There is no doubt. So the other, so he says about Jesus, what a great thing. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, in John 8, 36. Because you see, Jesus knows how to set free, and he takes sin and problems and oppression and sets us free. So he's loving and building. And sometimes you say, well, but Jesus, we're talking about coming into this sin. And now that you're pointing it out to me, I've had this since it was 10 years old. I've, I've, I've really held a grudge against my mom for giving my brother special treatment since I was 10. And, and I'm over 50 now. That makes it a 40-year sin. Can you really go down and forgive a 40-year sin? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. How do we know that in the Scripture? Jesus said in Isaiah, the Scripture says in Isaiah 1.18, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. He can go down to the depths of the depths, to the dirtiest of the dirtiest. One of the things the enemy does is he comes in and goes, Don't talk to God about that. You should be so ashamed. This is such an amazing deception because the enemy is coming to us telling us we should be ashamed about sin when he tried to usher us into sin. Do you see how this works? He turns around on you at any place he can to cut you down. So the enemy says, you cannot confess that sin. If you confess that sin, this whole fellowship would kick you out. They have no idea you're that dirty. I'm telling you, everybody in this room is that dirty. There, is th there are things deep within us. We go, well, I don't like to share that with anybody. Well, I'm so glad God forgave me, and God did forgive us. But he forgives totally, and he totally removes it as far as the east is from the west. And in Jeremiah, it says, he will remember your sins no more. I love this part to God where I come to God and say, well, you remember when I used to have trouble with this? And God says, no, I don't remember that. Because he remembers my sins no more. But the enemy will remember our sins all the way. He'll remember every sin and try to remind you. And he will come up to you and try to push you down. But the scripture says that even if your sins are horrible, 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 He'll make them white as snow. In Hebrews 7, 25, he says, He is also able, excuse me, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. Speaking of Jesus. Those who try to draw near to God, Jesus is able to save them forever. In the King James, it says, Save to the uttermost those that come unto Him. He knows how to reach down to the very, very, very bad bottom. When I was young, um, I spent the, the night when, my, when Margie was being born. When Margie was being born, I would go stay with my aunts. And my aunts had never gotten married. And um, so they, two of them, and I would stay at their house. And it was me and my brother and one of my sisters, I think. But um, they had an idea of a bath that I had never experienced. And so um, when I'm taking a bath, I'm not going to talk to you about my bath exactly. But when I was a kid, there was just a certain amount you did in a bathtub. But when I got it, when they, when we stayed at their house, they put us in this really nice old bathtub. Was, I mean, now it would be an antique, really pretty. And they got out brushes. I'd never had a brush. What do you do with a brush in the bathtub? They took the bottom of my feet and brushed the bottom of my feet. Now, I just want to, as a way of testimony or just, 
I've never brushed the bottom of my feet before or since. Okay, but when I was four years old or whatever I was, when they put me in the bath, they brushed the bottom of my teeth. They cleaned between my toes. My toes have never been so clean as when I came out of that bathtub. Okay, and the Lord prompted me and he said, that's what I do with you, Jim. I go all the way down and get the deep stuff. I don't just splash some water on it. I'm scrubbing you clean. It's altogether clean. And the biggest one here, too, to me, and it's such a critical verse, it's got to be in your top 10 verses to memorize, is Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, Jesus says this verse, which I know many of us know, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now I want you to know that the enemy rewrites this verse all the time. Most Christians can say, oh yes, in their mind, I know that verse. That's a common verse. We learned that a long time ago. But the way we live our lives is that Jesus said this, Come unto me all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you more spiritual tasks to do and really fill up your calendar with things that you have to do for me. That's the way they walk their life. They really believe when they come to the Lord, they do not receive rest, but they receive more responsibility. That's the way they live their life. But that is not what Jesus said. And one of the problems is we don't come unto him. We don't come unto Jesus. We come halfway. And then we say, okay, what have you got to say? Let me consider this. I'll weigh it. But we don't throw ourselves at his feet and say, you are Lord. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. I am all yours. We come to the Lord and say, what are you going to put on the table? And we listen to the Lord, but then we retain veto power. I may do it. I may not do it. And that's the way we live with him. And we go, there's a big danger. You're going to get a lot more work to do when you come to the Lord. So you got to be careful. Only go when you're desperate. How ridiculous. We need to be coming to him all day, every day, saying, Lord, I'm so glad you're with me. Because the true walk in the Lord is a walk of rest. Completely contrary to the world, the true walk in the Lord is a walk of rest. And if you say, well, I've just gotten so close to the Lord, but it's overwhelmed me what I have to do. Well, you need to get closer to the Lord. Because right in his heart, there's rest. There's rest, R-E-S-T. And he said, and this is very important, he said, yoke yourself to me. Learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Most Christians would say, it is tough being a Christian, and you have to hold out to the end, but you have all these things facing you. Let me tell you how bad the world is. On this end, this is thrown at you. On this end, this is thrown at you. Then they're going to increase my income taxes, and then over here it looks like somebody's going to build a house behind me that's got like a bordello-looking color to it. I don't know what's going on. I have all these things coming at me all the time. And what testimony is that? That testimony is I have to fix all these things out there, and I don't have the strength to do it. And since I don't see it in my strength, then I am discouraged, defeated, and oppressed. I want to give you a clue. We don't have strength for anything. Without his strength, we are a branch disconnected from the vine. We cannot do it. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, you will 
bear much fruit. Not you will have the option of bearing much fruit. Not you will bear much fruit if you abide in me and take the much fruit bearing course. No. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. A branch does not beat itself going, fruit, fruit, fruit. No. A branch abides in the vine. What flows from the vine makes fruit. It is natural and it is restful. But most people present the Christian life as a difficult challenge. And God bless you all for coming and participating in this hard road that we're on. And we'll encourage one another that we might persist to the very end, somehow God willing. And you know how that sounds? It just appeals to our flesh. Yes, I'm hanging in. I'm working. I'm going to make this go. That is not the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel is Jesus said, when you come to me, I will give you rest. And I'll give you another clue. When the world looks at you and they see you all tense and trying to make everything work, they go, well... I'm tense over here trying to make everything work. The best I can see about you, you say you're spiritual, but you're pretty tense. You're trying to make all things work. Whenever you talk to me, you talk about, I don't know how it's ever going to work out. That's your words. We need to be much closer to Jesus. We're not nearly as in Christ as we think we are. We're not nearly as in Christ as we think we are. We let lots of things invade our lives and push Jesus to the back. Lots of things. And he's saying, not only do you seek the kingdom of God, but you must seek first the kingdom of God. And that means Jesus has the place, and anything else that comes in, comes in under where Jesus wants it to be. But Jesus is first. The good news of the kingdom of God is the good news of Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King. And when we say that he is going to be first, it means everything else in our life falls under him. And there's rest. Now, I'm not presenting myself as an example. I'm looking at my next two weeks going, as best I can see, this is not going to work. As best I can see, it's not going to work. I have had on my calendar at work not two competing meetings, but four at the same hour, like 10 to 11. I'm supposed to be four places. Well, you can't do that. But somehow I walk through those days and we make it. But many, many times, I'll look at something and go, I cannot do it. And Jesus would just come to me and said, you never could do it. What is this revelation? You never could do it. You couldn't save yourself from your sins. You can't sanctify yourself. You can't redeem yourself. You haven't got wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says that Jesus was made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption and every one of us goes through our lives trying to do those things on our own we try to be wise well i'm smart i've i've gone to sunday school for a long time i've read the word there's there's lots of dirt in my bible where oil comes off my fingers i've read these pages so much and i've you know studied the word and i've been through 62 lessons and then i've memorized this number of scripture verses and yes sir i'm moving right along the way here and and we have some confidence that we've got wisdom and we know things. But the Bible says that Jesus was made unto us wisdom. The wisdom of God is beyond what men can transcribe on paper. The wisdom of God is in His Son, in whom 
the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. And you say, yeah, but I don't understand that. That's fine. That's fine you don't understand that. It's fine that I don't understand. It's bigger than our understanding. The Bible says that the love of God surpasses knowledge. You go knowledge, more knowledge, more knowledge, more knowledge, more knowledge. You can't get to the love of God. The love of God surpasses knowledge. It's bigger than knowledge. The love of God is in Christ Jesus, according to Romans 8. He is above and beyond that. So when we're talking about Jesus and saying, okay, well, how could we get Satan's thoughts? We have to see Jesus loving, building, setting free, calling unto us as rest. And when the spirit or the voices that we hear aren't in that line, it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. This is what the Bible says Jesus does. And these other things are not Jesus. And so don't receive them. And so when Satan comes, what does the Bible say about him? He steals, kills, and destroys. And when Satan points out a problem in your life, he leaves you not with a rescue, but he leaves you with hopelessness. He leaves you with no hope. So Satan comes into your life, and he says, Oh, well, here's this bad bitterness you've kept for 45 years. And let me tell you something, Sasha, if you've kept it for 45 years, it's not going anywhere. It's with you until the end. That's Satan. Satan says, you have tried X times to get something to happen. And now you're talking to me about trying again? You fool. If nine times didn't work for you, the tenth time is never going to work. That's Satan. It's the logic of this world, but the key thing is he leaves you hopeless. Anytime a voice comes in and leaves you hopeless, it's Satan because he steals, kills, and destroys. Jesus loves and builds. Now, Jesus will come in and show you something bad, but rescue you. He never leaves you down in the pit. He rescues you. The Bible says, he pulled me out of the miry clay. That's what Jesus does. And some of us have been in miry clay where we said, I don't think I can ever get out. Well, we couldn't on our own, but he does pull us out of the miry clay. He rescues. Satan leaves you hopeless. So when you hear the voice that says, here it is, you're bad and you're hopeless, that's Satan. Now, this, is gonna, <laughs> this may be kind of an alert thing. Don't play with Satan. Resist Satan. The Bible says to resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's not an option. That's what we should do. When you discover that those voices and those thoughts and that line of thinking is from Satan, resist it and he will flee. If you can't figure out what to say, just say, Satan, get out of here. That's good and simple and it works every time. It's like when you're praying for a demon and you can't figure out what demon is, just say, you tormenting spirit, get out of here. Works every time. So just it's just to say, this is Satan, I'll have nothing to do with it. Don't go, oh, this is Satan, I wonder how this works. Don't do that. You cannot contend with Satan. He will trick you. He will appear as an angel of light. He will, appear. He will tell you you're doing a good thing. Jesus said there will come people who will kill Christians and believe they're following after me. That's how much deception Satan can sow. So once you know it's Satan, that's it. Have nothing to do with it. And that's hard because a lot of those lines of thoughts that come into our minds say, make us feel good. Like, well, actually, I am doing pretty good seeing that I didn't get the opportunities my brother had. 
Yeah, well, my brother went through, became a successful businessman, but he had five times the opportunity, and I just had this much. And considering the opportunity that my parents gave him, I think I've done more than he has. Do you see? And I like thinking about that because it makes me feel good about my life and what I've done. I'm not too keen on my brother either. Do you see? That whole thought path is from Satan. If you know it's from Satan, don't play with it. Hate it and get rid of it because it kills. Sin kills. Sin puts us in bondage. You say, well, I control that thought. You don't control that thought. It controls you. And you'll find somebody else comes up to you instead of being nice and friendly to them, you're going, well, I'm owed in life. I haven't gotten my just due. I think my brother owes me. That's the way you think. And you start thinking, I have got to receive. Instead of Jesus said that, that the greatest among us would be our servant and that he came not to be served, but to serve. And he will never have that heart in us if we allow these thought patterns that Satan puts in to reside in us. Once we've discerned it's not of God, we have to reject it forcefully and get rid of it. So I just want to finish with a few verses on anxiety and, and then I'll be done. So the reason not depression, oppression, and defeat was what we just went through. But anxiety is a little bit special, and they're actually special scripture verses that deal with anxiety. And anxiety is a big deal. Anxiety floats around everywhere. Uh, I can just tell you this. When I drive into Atlanta, and we're coming down 95, and we're kind of heading down over towards the, the north side, and we're suddenly in seven lanes of traffic, I'm telling you something. My heart's going, okay, we've got to watch where are all these cars going, and I don't know if y'all, what I think Helen told me, I forget, what did you call those people that change lanes, honey, something beavers? Weaver beavers, yeah, <laughs> weaver beavers. You're on the car and you see this person, they don't click, no, they don't do their light, they just see a space, boop, boop, they just do this, boop, boop, and they're just getting ahead maybe 40 feet by going, boop, 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 and they'll whip right in front of you and you're going, whoa, whoa, so watch out for the weaver beavers. You see two or three weaver beavers, your heart goes up, you feel the anxiety. The greatest thing about the Lord is that he can be with us even when you're in traffic, even when you're in fast traffic, even when you're in idiotic traffic, even when they shut the road down in front of you and there's no way they could shut the road down because there's no way to go back. He's still with us. He doesn't abandon us in any situation. But anxiety is something that we, will, we have really got to know. The Lord wants no anxiety in our life. It's very, very important because the enemy will say, it's all right for there to be anxiety because, Gary, if you're anxious, it just shows that you're responsible. See, responsible people are looking at things, trying to make them work out right, and part of the load of responsibility is anxiety. It's just part of it. You've just got to manage it. And I don't know how many times I've heard people talking about managing anxiety and what you do and this, that, and the other, and the Bible says that he doesn't want you to be anxious at all. Jesus said, I give you a peace that's not the peace of this world but it's the peace that's from me. The scripture says he was made unto us peace. It's a totally different dimension. And you go, wait a second, if you're talking about taking anxiety out of my life, you're talking about a heavy lift. You can't just take anxiety out of my life. I have children. You can't take anxiety out of my life unless you take children out of my life. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said he was giving us a peace that wasn't of this world because the peace that's of this world looks at circumstances and says, how are circumstances going, and how can I influence circumstances 
so they go better in my direction. If I have the power and the ability to influence circumstances so they go better in my direction, then I'm feeling good. If I don't have hope, the power and ability to influence circumstances, then I become anxious. It's out of control. Now, we have this idea from somewhere that we're in control. Now, you need to get to really know the Lord because you'll recognize we're actually never in control. You know, um, I don't want to tell too many stories about birth, but when Helen and I were having our first, Helen and I, when Helen was having our first child, we took this course, and it was something like a Lamaze course, and they were telling husbands, this is what you can do for your wife. And you can rub her shoulders and say nice things to her. And they had six or eight things that you would do to kind of help her through labor. And it made husbands feel like you were part of the process. Well, this was a joke, okay? I just want to let you know that when a woman goes into labor, there are serious things happening. And sometimes the last thing she wants you to do is to touch her. That is the last thing that she wants. We paid a lot of money for this course. But, you know, we went through this. But I'm telling you, when things begin to move, things begin to move. And I had to deliver three babies as part of my medical training. And I can tell you for those three babies, there's a certain point. It's going to happen. You're either going to catch it or you're going to miss it. But it's coming out. Okay? And I mean, they come out with pressure. And uh, one thing I had to learn is when a baby is born, you make sure you keep a hand below the baby when they're being born. And you put your hand on the head and push back a little bit because they come out with some pressure. Well, we have that in the world. We feel like, my gosh, all this is coming, and it's coming downhill, and it's coming on me, and there's no stopping it. And we get this feeling of helplessness. And when you feel helpless, you feel anxious. And then you see the consequences if it doesn't go in your direction, and you feel more anxious. But what does the Scripture have to say? The Scripture is very clear. that the I mean, the first thing I want to say about what the Scripture says is just like oppression and defeat, You need to make sure that your relationship with God is right. You need to make sure there's not something God has said for you to do that you're delaying. Now, I want to emphasize this thing about delaying. It isn't that you disagree with God. Most of us won't disagree with God. We'll just delay or we'll just go part way. Well, I'll try to be nice to my sister. I'll say two nice things to her to make you happy, God. But in my heart, I don't like my sister-in-law. She scheduled that wedding right in front of mine. How could you be so mean as to do that? And you still have it in there. So you'll say two nice things to her, but from your heart, you don't forgive her. That's not the right. That's not going with the Lord. So the two things that we do that we mess up when the Lord speaks to us is we rarely say, God, I know that's you and get out of here. We don't say that. We know not to do that. But we agree with God and we go part way. I'll say two nice things to my sister-in-law, but I'm not going to forgive her from my heart. And that checks the box, God, of my sister-in-law. It doesn't check a box. God doesn't check boxes. He demands your whole heart so he can bless your whole heart and your whole life. He does not check boxes. The world checks boxes. The second thing that we do is we agree with God and delay. We say, oh yeah, I'm going to do that. Oh, absolutely, God, I know that's important. I know you've told me about that before. I'm going to get to it, and we delay. I'm telling you, If you just had a 10-foot angel with a 7-foot sword telling you the same thing, you would not delay. And that's an angel. We will judge the angels. The glory of an angel is nothing compared to the glory of the Father. And when the Father says, I want you to do this, and we say, yep, 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 but I'm going to delay, it's inconceivable if we could see the Father that we would say that. 
But because our vision of the Father is so low, we just tell God. And that means we are ordering God's schedule around. We're not given over to God. We're asking God to be given over to us. Do you see? These are big things, not little things. But the enemy paints them as little things. You don't see your sister-in-law but twice a year. This is not a big deal. God knows it's a thing in your life and it needs to get fixed. So first you've got to get those ready. You can't come to God with that sitting in your life and then say, I need to deal with anxiety. You can't. But there are two scripture verses that are the prime anxiety verses that you've got to know, in my opinion, are just key verses. First is 1 Peter 5, 7, which just straightforwardly says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, the first thing the enemy will come on that verse is to say, he'll say, don't cast it. So if you cast something, you let go of it. So if you pick it up, if I took this Bible and cast it across the room, I throw it and I cast it, I've let go of it. That's what he means. He means take your anxiety and let go of it and let it land on Jesus. Many Christians go, I will share my anxiety with Jesus and we'll see what he does about it. So they say, well, have you talked to the Lord about that? The Bible doesn't say talk to the Lord about it. The Bible says cast it on the Lord. And you say, well, I can't cast it on the Lord. You don't understand. This has got real implications. I could lose $50,000 if this doesn't come out right. Do you know how stupid that is? That's saying since it's important, I can't give it to God. It is exactly the opposite. Since it's important, you must give it to God. God is the only one who can straighten it out. But our stupid earthly thinking is like, well, I'll let God have a part of it. We'll see how God does. We'll let God be at mix. He can be at the table. We'll approach this anxiety thing with a team effort. Do you hear how, how positive and deceptive that sounds? You can't do that. You have to take the anxiety and cast it. And you cast it on him. And what does the scripture say? For he cares about you. What, what, so if the, if the Bible says he cares about you, what does the enemy say? It doesn't come flat out and say God doesn't love you. He'll just come back and say, do you know all the things going on in the world? God is busy. Do you hear that? God's busy. It's not working out exactly like you're thinking because God's busy. God is never too busy for anybody. and We don't even know what multitasking is. God can multitask with the whole world. The Bible says he's numbered every hair on every head. In this room, the average number of hairs on a head are over 100,000. And the Bible says not only when you take a shower or wash your hair, God not only knows how many you lost, he knows which ones you've lost. He's sitting there and he's, he's looking at John and he goes, okay, RK462, down the drain. LP298, down the drain. And with me, there are fewer that go down the drain. But, you know, he knows which one. And if you think he can't multitask your anxiety, we're nuts. God says he keeps track of the sparrows that fall. Sparrows are these birds that fly from bush to bush and barely look like they can fly. I challenge you to go watch a video of sparrows. They're just barely flying. And he knows when every one of those makes a move. God is bigger and more wonderful than we think. And he wants us to cast the anxiety, not share the anxiety. Very big. And then Philippians 4, 6, and 7, he starts off and he says, Be anxious for nothing. Well, I used to read that and I go, Well, that's a great aspirational goal. But you got to be realistic. You cannot be anxious for nothing. That's, you can't do that. 
And so I would have to drop that out of my Bible and say, well, you can't do that. That's with my drop Bible verses. We've talked about this. I had to cut out the verse that said, you shall do even greater things than I'm doing. Uh, well, I can't do that. I had to cut out the verse that says, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, with lust, then you've committed adultery with her in your heart. I can't have that. And so I'd cut this out. I had a number of holes in my Bible, you know, Sasha, if I cut those things out. I didn't cut those out with, a, with scissors, but I would just read over them fast because they weren't real in my life. Jesus would say, you must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that's unrealistic. Unrealistic means in our concept of living, we don't see how to do it. But Jesus said, those things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And he's, he's flat saying, go to the limit of what you can do, Gary, and now go way beyond that, and God does that regularly. And he does it all the time. So this says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension or all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which passes understanding. So what that means, surely, is that your understanding is saying, I'm, I shouldn't be at peace. I don't see how this is going to work out. I just want to give you one phrase, and I want to make sure you walk away with this phrase. Jesus is the way who takes care of the how. Jesus is the way that takes care of the how. You know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Many complaints and a central problem with anxiety is we come to the place where we go, I don't see how it can work out. Jesus is the way that takes care of, who takes care of the how. Now, if you read the Bible and you read in the Old Testament, you're going to have a hundred stories of how God interacted with his people. And the one thing, a couple things about those stories I want to make sure that you walk away with is God routinely responds in a way that no one ahead of time gave him that option. Routinely, God comes in and does what nobody perceived he could do. He does that all the time. When Moses was next to the Red Sea, not one Israelite was saying to Moses, just call on God and have him do the Red Sea maneuver. Nobody was telling Moses that. The people were looking at the circumstances and had tremendous anxiety because there were chariots and swords coming at them this way from the Egyptians, and over here was drowning. And so it was not, are you going to die? It was just, how are you going to die? That's what they were looking at. And they got very upset and boiled over it, Moses, but nobody said to God, just split the ocean with the old split the ocean maneuver. They just called out to God, what did God do? I'm going to show you something. He split the ocean. Well, you can't split the oceans. God doesn't have the word can't in his vocabulary. Things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And now we all know that story and we go, oh yeah, but we know that story because we've, we've seen the Ten Commandments and everything and that's in the Bible stories, but that's not my life. I have real problems. They had real problems. <laughs> they were going to be cut to pieces. These were real problems. 
when Jehoshaphat was being attacked by all these armies, they were all coming on. He was outnumbered 10 to 1. And what did God tell him to do? He said, this is what I want you to do with your army. I'm dead sure Jehoshaphat was saying, send, uh, was probably praying, Lord, let me send a messenger out to these allies that I have over here to bring more people in so we won't get wiped out. That would be the way I would pray. You know, I, that would be how I would pray. Lord, how can I get more people in to do this? But do you know what God said? God said, don't get more people. You just take your army and send them out there just regular, except this. Send the praisers and the worshipers out front with no swords, no spears. You just have them praise and worship me, heading right into the swords and spears of the enemy. Now, how does that mesh with your natural mind? I would say, wait a second. The one thing I know is that that's foolish. Those people are going to be carved up. That's what God said to do. Because God said to do it, it's never foolish. It's exactly the opposite. Because God said to do it, it's absolutely holy. Did it ever bother you that when the angel came to Zechariah and told him about John the Baptist, that he asked, how is this possible? And then God smote him dumb for asking how? Well, you know, I thought that was awfully stiff. I mean, I, that's because if I was Zechariah, I would have said the same thing. <laughs> you know, so I would have said, but wait, how can this be? You know, and the angel said, because you have doubted the Lord. Well, I didn't consider asking how, doubting the Lord. You know, I, how, that's a, I'm, y'all bear with me here. I felt that was a pretty reasonable approach to the angel. How can this be? I'm an old man. This doesn't, how can this be? But when the angel came to Mary, what did Mary say? Let it be unto me as the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be unto me as you have said, for I am the handmaiden of the Lord. Not how. And she had some serious hows. Okay? She had some serious hows. You're telling me I'm going to bear a baby and no, I'm not going to have intercourse with anybody and that the Holy Spirit's going to come? That's, she had some serious, but she didn't say how. She says, it's God. It's God. I don't have to do with how. Now, this is a huge thing for us because mostly this is at the core of our anxiety. We look at the circumstances, don't see the how, and if we don't see the how, we become anxious. And God is saying, instead of looking at circumstances, I want you to take your eyes off of circumstances. I want you to be looking at me. You keep looking at circumstances. You should not be looking at circumstances. Your eyes should be set on that which is above, like he says in Colossians 3.1. Set your mind on that which is above where Christ is. And when you look at me, the circumstances will fall into line, but you need to be looking at me. And you keep complaining to me about your assessment of the circumstances. As if the Lord doesn't know the circumstances. You know, when we had the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus taught us the Lord's Prayer, the first thing he said was, let me teach you this prayer. He says, first I want to let you know before you ask him, God knows what you need. Therefore, pray like this. But we pray as if God has been out of the loop and needs to be informed. I woke up this morning, there was a twinge in my back. It cannot be a nerve problem, Lord. I cannot have a nerve problem. You see, I want to tell you about this twinge, Lord. It started up here, it went down around here, went to the, this side of my leg. It cannot be inert. We tell him in detail as if he doesn't know. Now, I, I'm an advocate for telling him in detail. That's fine, it helps us. But we need to recognize he already knows. He's been talking to that nerve all night. He knows all these things. 
And so when we get to this place, instead of our eyes being on circumstances, Jesus is saying, I want your eyes to be on me. And we're not going to have time because for some reason we keep running out of time. But, but I may have to pick this up some next week. But Matthew 6, 25 through 33 are the classic verses on anxiety. Because Jesus is trying to draw an outline for us and say, Don't you understand that your heavenly Father feeds the birds, He dresses the flowers, and aren't you of such more importance than those? But we don't rely on our heavenly Father. We call on the Lord when we run out of our earthly strength. So our natural pattern in life is live according to your knowledge, skills, and abilities, and earthly strength. And when you run out of ability, make a long-distance call to God and say, I'm in trouble, and I need you to step in. When all the while God is saying the normal life you should be living is that your eyes are on me at 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 12, the whole day, and we're walking in a dimension you have never walked in because that's my purpose for you. And when you walk in that dimension, you are going to do the things Jesus did and even greater things. But if we live our life where we live on our natural strength and call on God periodically when we run out of natural strength, we will never walk as Jesus walked. We will never do the things Jesus did, nor will we approach doing greater things. Because Jesus said, I'm only doing what I hear from the Father. And we do not walk every day hearing from the Son. Jesus even said, these are not things I do. The Father does the works through me. And it's Jesus' intent that he does works through us. But we don't walk with him. We walk with him in our own strength and then call him when we run out of our own strength. And he's trying to say, take your eyes off of doing it the natural way and put your eyes on me and you're going to walk in a different place. And so I can't go through that one entirely, but I do want to finish up just to make sure because it's so important. The best example of this was Peter walking on the water. So you remember the story of Peter walking on the water, and this is in Matthew 14, 23 through 32. And the key points are that the boat was out some distance. The other key point was there was a storm and there were waves, so it was unusual. And sometimes when people share this story, they skip certain parts of it, but it says when they saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. Terrified doesn't mean casually interested, that's unusual. Terrified, okay, terrified. And it said, it is a ghost. And then they cried out in fear, or I like the Amplified, which says, they screamed in fear. Now, I've got a microphone, so I can't do that. But y'all know what a scream is? Um, we've had a little, you know, when Helen sees a roach come running across, there's a really good example of a scream, okay? Helen doesn't like roaches. And one of my responsibilities as a husband is to move roaches from in our house to some distant place, okay? And you, you as a husband, may not have that responsibility. I have that responsibility in our house, okay? Well, that's a scream, when I hear Helen scream like that, I don't know if her arm's been cut off. I don't know if she's been shot. It's the same scream, okay? It's, it, but it turns out to be a roach more times than not, okay? That's screaming. The Bible doesn't just say they were in the boat going, hey, look at that, there's a ghost. No, they screamed in terror, okay? And then Jesus said, he spoke to them and said, take courage, be not afraid. Do you know what Jesus' words to us every single time we're afraid are? Take courage, be not afraid. When you're in a situation and you call out to Jesus, the first thing he says is, take courage, be not afraid. And why? 
it is I. It's me. When Jesus is there, because Jesus is there, you can take courage and not be afraid. You don't know what he's going to do. It isn't what he's going to do. That's the old way of thinking. It's who he is. This is the whole idea in heaven. Jesus and the Father light heaven. Well, how do they do that? Just think about how many times you say how. Every time it's got to be explained to us as how, we're bringing it down, saying it's got to be subservient to my understanding. God does not do that. He's going to be above our understanding. I don't know how Jesus and the Father light heaven. How can heaven go on and there not be any darkness? When are you going to sleep? There is no sleeping. But then you get exhausted. Do you see? How, 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 how? I've got to understand. You know, I can't understand heaven. That's why Paul said, the eye is not seen. The ear is not heard. It hasn't entered into your brain the things God has prepared for them that love him. And if you say, well, I know what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be this, this, and this. Oh, no, you don't. It hasn't entered into your brain the very thing that God has prepared for them that love him. We, it's bigger and better than we think. So Jesus is trying to get us to the place where all we're concerned about is it is I. He's here. And that's what he said in the Old Testament over and over. He would say to Moses, Moses would, he would explain, Moses, you need to go here. And Moses would end up saying, I can't do that. I can't speak to the Pharaoh. I don't have any talent. And you know what God answered him and said? He didn't say, I'm going to give you the John Smith course in public speaking, and in four weeks you'll be there. He just said, oh, don't worry about it. I will be with you. You see, to God, it's all, am I there with you? That's the only thing that matters. But to us, as it was to Moses, it was, I can't do this. I don't have the ability. And all through the Bible, when God consoled people, he just said, I will be with you. When we have the 23rd Psalm in the fourth verse, what does it say? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me, not because I understand why there needed to be evil to tempt me at this time in my life. No. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. You're with me. And that's what God's always saying. So Peter looked out, and he said, Lord, beckon me to come to you. And the Lord beckoned him, and Peter got out, and he started walking on the water. You know, when he looked at Jesus, he walked in a dimension he could not walk in. But the Bible says that then he saw the wind, and he could see the waves coming up. And his eyes went from being on Jesus to looking at the circumstance. And when he looked at those wind and waves, what do you think went through his mind? You can't walk on water. You see, the enemy all the time is coming to tell us the very thing God does. You can't do that. And he doesn't say, God can't walk on water. He says, you can't walk on water. God, Satan always brings it from God to your abilities. He said, Jane, you can't do this. This is for Christians who have walked in the Lord 25 years and led large, massive assemblies of people. Not you. That's Satan. That's Satan. We had a thing here in this church, and I shared this last week. There were two kids back there that were four years old, and the Holy Spirit just fell on them. And they walked up here and started praying for people in the altar. Well, they're four years old. Well, you can't do that. You didn't take the course on altar ministry. Do you see? You forgot to do this. You forgot to do it. You're only four years old. We don't allow four-year-old people to play for 55-year-old people. That inverts the natural order of God. Do you see? 
Do you see how we bring man's way in on it? And God just said, I'm going to bless four-year-olds and have them bless other people. How about that? Well, I don't know. We haven't run that by the official board. <laughs> this is what we do to God. And God's trying to say to us, look, walk in me. We're going places you have not charted. That's why these things are written in the Scripture. But we have excuses for why they're in the Scripture and why nobody gets there. And to make ourselves feel better, we turn and compare ourselves to other people. And we say, well, I'm doing well compared to these people. These people over here, they don't even believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But how are you going to go anywhere if you don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit? But our group, we believe in that, so we're a notch up. You may not say that, but you believe it inside. God's not in that at all. He's saying, I am way up here. I want you looking at me. When you look at Jesus, you walk in a dimension beyond the earthly natural. And he's calling us to do that. That is the cure for anxiety. That is the cure. But those two verses are really important because they speak right to anxiety. If Christians would not ever be oppressed, defeated, or anxious. They would stand out so much in the world that other people would go, what is it about you that keeps you from being oppressed, defeated, and anxious? I don't know how you do it, but you do it. And the enemy is very intent on keeping Christians oppressed, defeated, and anxious. And he'll use religious terms. And he'll use religious words. And he is deceptive. And Jesus is saying, break through that. Let me tell you, if it's not something that builds you back up, it's Satan. Once you find it, Satan, push it away. And you have these scriptures to rely on. And don't get caught in the anxiety thing saying, I'm going to be anxious unless I know the how. Because this morning I'm telling you the how. Jesus, the way, takes care of the how. Jesus is the way who takes care of the how. Not our understanding, but the Son of the living God. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you that all things pertaining to love, righteousness, and wonder you have taken care of. You've hidden these blessings in your Son. I ask, Lord, you make these things real to us in our heart, that they are not theories, but, Lord, that these are things that we walk in. And I ask that your Holy Spirit come now and walk right into our hearts and change things that need to be changed. Show us sins that need to be gotten rid of. Stir us in directions, Lord, that we have let be dormant because we walk in your strength. I speak against where the enemy has made strongholds of oppression and fear and depression in our lives. I speak against those strongholds now in Jesus' name that those strongholds be torn down and that there be an opening, Lord, of your Spirit to come and wash clean and bring liberty to the captive. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.